Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 230. Oh, man, I'm sweating. Is it is it nasty out there? It's a little swampy. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty hot up here. It's Houston in the summer now. It's actually officially summer, right? Yeah. You um, will, yeah. I mean, the, the, the difference is, like, my version of cooling is a swamp cooler. Like, that's all I have for my shop. And it does an okay job. Yeah, yeah. We can't use swamp coolers because that it's already a swamp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, the reason why is uh, so I was driving home from uh, the office today, HQ, um, and uh, I ha- I was noticing that my voltmeter on my wagon was uh, not doing what it should be doing. Usually, when the all the battery system in the in the wagon's all good, it's almost pegged at fourteen volts. Um, from the alternator, but I was noticing it was like it was just a tad above twelve, but you can definitely tell it was like it was like limping above twelve, and I was like, oh, that's not good. Um, so basically, that means the alternator is starting to go out. So yeah, I, quick, quick question for yeah. for the non-car people around. I, I'm raising my hand here. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I know this is maybe perhaps a ridiculous question, but maybe it's not at the same time. Where is the voltage actually red? Is it red directly at the alternator, or is it red at the battery? Depends. Okay. It depends on the manufacturer and where the voltmeter is actually set up on. On old-school-style cars, it's usually actually just red at the gauges. And okay. In the ideal world, it's at the end of all your power stuff. And so it's like after all the voltage drops, that's what it reads. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, but but really, I mean, most of the time it's some pretty damn big gauge stuff. You shouldn't well, get any voltage drop. It starts to any- thin out as you like go through your your windows and go through all your accessory stuff. So it's basically at the farthest. It, it, the best spot for it is at the farthest end of everything. Well, so and and the, the gauge is just a gauge, right? The the gauge is just a gauge. It's not like a controller. It's purely Correct. just telling you the voltage. Yeah. Like a computer's not reading the gauge and being like, I need to do something about this. No, no, no. Um, that's usually done in the alternator itself. It, that's where it's regulated. Well, older re- alternators have an external regulator, mm-hmm. and then they put them inside of them. Um, I don't know when, in like the 70s, 80s, something like that. Okay. Um, it used to be you can replace the regulators would just go bad, and so you would just replace the regulator. And then electronics got good enough in cars where they were like, oh, yeah, let's just put it in the alternator now to save some cost. That's, that's how it was with my old motorcycle, actually. Um, the, the regulator was actually, it was full on like a separate unit. But that's because it had giant air fins and you would mount it underneath the bike. Yep, yep. But motorcycles are different, I guess. Okay, but, continue. Um, no, no, they, they have large fins on cars, too. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, so anyways, it was starting to dip. And I'm like, okay. So I pulled over and um, and uh, called up four-wheel parts. And I'm like, hey, you have a alternator for my full-size Jeep, uh, which is the Wagoneer. And they're like, yeah, we got one uh, rebuilt. Actually, it's not rebuilt. It's a brand new one uh, made in U- or made from USA parts, blah, 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 blah. It says made in USA in the box. Whatever. It's probably half. <laughs> um, at least it's assembled, right? And checked. It, like when I opened it up, it has like, like, like a actual has a testing card from um, whoever tested it, and they actually write like what the amperage is at like, 
at certain RPMs and what the regulator is set to. Oh man, it's not just the bureaucratic stamp tested. No, by it's number actually eight. like it's written in pen. Oh my gosh. So the tester actually, and the tester signed it too. Is there a picture of the tester like hugging it before they put it in the box too? Kissing it like a baby. He's yeah. like, hope. I hope you go off to a good home. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, so I get home and uh, spent 35 minutes just replacing that, that pupper. Just ripped out the old one, put the new one back in. Um, there was a couple issues doing that. Um, one is the back of the alternator was clocked differently. And what I mean by clocked is on the front of it's got two ears. One's threaded and one's a through hole. So the, the through hole is where the alternator swings on. And the threaded part has a bolt that goes through it through a clamp, basically, so you can set the tension on the belt. Mm-hmm. Now, on the back side, you have a ground um, lug and you have a power lug. So the power lug goes to your battery, and the ground lug goes to your the ground of the car. Um, on on the Jeep, those have to be in a certain spot because the bracket and doesn't have a battery. It doesn't have a negative cable. It has a negative bracket, a steel bracket that actually like shunts it over. It's like a bus bar room. It shunts it over to the engine, hmm. and that has to be in the right spot relationship to the two ears on the front. And so I had to. Un- unscrew the four screws of the case and then rotate it 180 and then put it back together. Oh, so so whoever assembled it, did they not assemble no, it? No, it's it's that's how they're designed from factory. It's just when AMC designed this engine, it was with a different alternator. And so in like the eighties they switched to this style alternator and they just made it work by doing that. Ah. And so basically this is more of like a it's a generic alternator. It's it's called a, I can't remember the brand of the manufacturer. Denso, something like that. Desco. Den, I think it's Denso. But it's a, it's a, it's like a case um, style that a lot of manufacturers use. Uh, car manufacturers. It's they're like an OEM. The style, mm-hmm. a case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I pulled it apart, and I've done this before. But you're supposed to like pull it out just by like about an inch and then you can rotate it and then put it back together well it was binding on something i'm like i don't know what that is so just i'm just gonna yank on it yeah actually <laughs> that's what i did is i yanked it a little apart and then of course something goes boing out of it oh no it was just the brushes oh and you got so lucky. i've never actually like reassemble i've reassembled like brushless motors and brushed motors before and but i've never done an alternator before so i'm like huh how do i get the brushes back in because they're sealed behind like all this metal. There's a little tiny pinhole. So you, what you do is you, you put the, the spring in and then you put the brush and you push the brush in. And then from the back of the case, you can put a, a nail in to hold the brush down. And so it's preloaded and then you can slide the front of the case in and then you remove the pin and the brushes go into the rotor. Man, that sounds like some automotive bullshit right there. <laughs> I replaced the the alternator on my truck, and I had to do some similar uh, finagling to get it to work. Yeah. Well, at least I didn't have to, like, drill. Like, I've done this before on other alternators. It's like, oh, you know, I need a bigger hole for a bolt, so you drill the case out. <laughs> hey, it is what it is, man. But, um, yeah, the great thing is with uh, older cars like this is you... I knew my alternator was failing before it completely died out on me. 
Yeah. Like, because I noticed that it was still charging, but it was not adequate enough to keep the battery at 14 volts or 13.7 or whatever um, it's set to um, the system is. But yeah, because I, I noticed that it, if it wasn't charging at all, it'd be like an eight. So mm. it was it was starting to fluctuate. And that's the problem with with modern cars is you don't know until you're actually like stuck on the side of the road and then the car's like, oh, yeah, alternator's not working. You know, uh, <laughs> f- did you look at the old alter- alternator and potentially diagnose, like, what went wrong with it? I have it on the bench. I'll, I mean, I still have it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can probably take it apart and look at it, but I, it was really... Uh, the only thing I... Because I had to take the pulley off of it and put the pulley on my new one, and... Uh, I noticed that the shaft was a little crunchy, so I'm going to bet you it's actually a bearing starting to go on it. Mm. And it probably was making intermittent contact with the brushes. That's what I'm going to guess, is that the shaft was not concentric anymore. That's what I'm going to guess. It's old. It's old. It's, yeah, really old, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was all good. The great thing is, you know, I got home, and uh, it was like 5.30-ish. And I was just able to swap that pupper out. And this thing is four wheel parts wanted like two hundred dollars or something like that to replace it. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I can do that in my you know my sleep. You know, uh, it, it's funny. Um, kind of similar uh, story with with coils. Uh, not this weekend, but the weekend before my AC. My, my wife and I were we were sitting on our couch. We were just watching TV on Sunday, and. Um, she leans over to me. She's like, do you smell that? I'm like, wait, what? And I started sniffing, and it's just like the room just stunk. Like, it was awful. And uh, and I got my nose down by the AC vent, and uh, and just like this horrible smell was coming out of it. So I shut off my AC, and we go through this whole, like, I don't know. We're, 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 we're searching for all kinds of stuff. And then, uh, and then I think about it. I'm like, that's got to be the smell of dying varnish on a motor you know like that <laughs> that's the smell i've because I, because i and you know what the only reason i know that is because i've destroyed motors before destroyed yeah be, being around destroyed motors yeah yeah so so in a similar in a, in a similar fashion to you like i call up the, an ac guy and i was like you know what what is it going to cost for you to do this for me and and the guy you know over the phone you know obviously he's like I, well i can't tell you if that's the exact problem but like if it is you know, this is going to start at like seven, eight hundred bucks. And I was like, click. You know? <laughs> like, I found I found one of the one of the I found that motor in, in town. Actually, it's funny because the, the, the that um, the blower motor in my AC is what died. Uh, and I found that five minutes from work. There's like a there's like a heater sh- shop and they had it. And of course, it's like three hundred and sixty bucks. But, you know, slap that on. And, and that's actually the reason why I asked you if you had diagnosed uh, your alternator because I took out the, the, the motor and it felt like vindication because you could see in the back of the blow, blower motor and there's like all this nice like copper wound up and there's these big like zebra strikes of black through it oh, no. where, where like clearly one of, one of the three coils just bit the dust yeah one of the, one of the um, one of the windings uh, winding yeah one of the set of windings there's probably a certain word for a set of winding in there yeah. But um, no, well, I, it, it, no, it looked fine when I pulled it out and it wasn't smoking or anything. But it was definitely when I, I because I use an impact to pull the pulley off, and um, 
and I, I pulled the pulley off and then I spun the shaft and I'm like, hmm, it's supposed to be freewheeling. Yeah. Which is interesting. All the alternators I've destroyed or gone bad on me in my life, it's always been bearings. Hmm. It's never been like they stop putting juice out. It's usually like the bearings start going on them and they either make a, this one didn't make any noise though. Cause usually they start making awful screeching noises, like crazy screeching noises before they like when the bearings go, but yeah, it's a catastrophic knows? failure. This could be, um, just, uh, you know, it was just wobbling so that the, the bushings weren't making good contact. You know, when my alternator went out in my truck last summer, um, I got, I, I I'm, so ridiculously lucky at this uh i was actually out buying a pizza and i was i was like i had my truck had like i got the pizza and and i i'd go to start my truck and i was like man this is running really freaking hard and like it was had a lot of trouble starting and i i'm driving it home and i can feel like i'm losing power i'm like oh this is not good and uh, and then i i like pull into my driveway and my truck just dies and like it just died like straight in the in the driveway, so and luckily it was like a Friday night. Uh, I got a pizza because my wife was out of town. I was like, ah, it was bachelor weekend. Yeah. No, it's time to change an alternator. But the, all this said is like I, I pulled my alternator and it was a bearing failure. Mine yeah. had actually seized. Like Ooh. my, it, it, but it's funny because it seized like right at the last minute when I got into my driveway. I couldn't even turn the shaft. One, one of the bearings Ooh. just became like oblong and the shaft just said nope i'm not doing this anymore <laughs> now the uh i've had one in my red jeep fail and it actually broke the housing wow so the the belt was like you're still spinning <laughs> 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 fractured the housing <laughs> wow didn't yeah. get my didn't get my um yeah i win core core change on that one so. <laughs> yeah. okay so enough car stuff yeah Brewing back onto brewing. Yes, it's been well, kind of a we, interesting. We, um, we've had we had a a guest on about brewing, and we're finalizing our breweries right now. It's kind of interesting. It's I think it's kinda, serendipitous. That could be. I, I I think I think it it kind of sparked some some. Well, I got sparked from you, and like all these topics about it. Like I don't know. We're just we're just into it. So last week we talked about. Uh, this coming Saturday, which let me let me look at 27th. the calendar. You you know what? It, uh, yeah, the twenty seventh. The twenty seventh. Yes. Parker and I are both planning <laughs> on brewing. <laughs> well, I had to look. You actually knew. Uh, so yeah, we're both planning on brewing. So question is, update. Are you are you ready to brew on Saturday? So last night, I filled up the brewery, and, and this is air quotes because people can't see me calibrated my sight gauges and then i auto <laughs> calibrated your sight gauges by sight by sight yes <laughs> nist man <laughs> clearly got certificate and everything yeah um and then School i auto the kids and yeah that's all i've done so i need the next so that's what i've done um H how did the auto tuning go i mean i set it to auto tune and i let it run and it did it <laughs> Right, it, it, it's, it's like there's not much to it, <laughs> you know. Okay, so I have the same PID controller, um, and I auto tuned a few years ago on on my boil kettle. 
I would be interested to compare our PI and D values to see if, if like, even with different setups in different parts of the country, do we have PID values the same, you know? I think, it, I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, the, oh, yeah, and another thing I did is I, I took a cue from you because you said you were, like, actually seeing if your PID controllers with the RTD was actually like accurate enough and i actually i did that i took my i have that one that was um it actually is a calibrated thermocouple thing temperature reader thing temperature reader it actually has a it actually That's, does I can have see a that at the top of the nist report thing, thing. temperature <laughs> thing um it actually has a certificate and all that good stuff um and it was like within error of like both units like the i looked up i can't remember what the error rate of the pid with that rtd was but it was like plus minus like half a degree or something like that's what's supposed to be yeah and then this thing is like plus minus like 0.5 degrees no 0.1 degree and so then they were within each other's error so i'm like okay that's good enough for me yeah it's worth knowing now you know yeah it's, it's worth knowing actually um, if I'm, you look at the manual for those pid controllers they say do that once a year Oh, just, just check, check it. Because you never yeah. know. Yeah. It, it, so I, I did the same thing with my system last night. I, Because uh, I have two different PID controllers. In fact, one of my PID controllers is exactly the same as Parker's. And, and that one, when I checked it against a thermopen that I have, it's, it's like dead spot on. And then the cheapo Amazon one that I have as my second PID actually needed a 9-degree offset, which... That seems excessive, but when I read online, like other people are like, yeah, you need to check these ones. And, and <laughs> I, I, tr I checked it against room temperature and like 170 degree water and it tracked fine. So I think it's just like a DC offset effectively. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the extra money you pay is someone put in that nine degree offset already. Right, right. They have they have a, a a glass of iced tea and a glass of like boiling tea, and they just put probes in both of them and check. <laughs> if it was in Texas, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, what I did notice is because I have one of those PID controllers on two thermocouples, so it has a switch. And mm -hmm. I did notice that basically like. The I gotta set the, it's got a, it's like a smoothing effect on the output. I guess it's probably like a moving window average of like what the output actually is. Um, and if you if you switch the temperature and the temperatures between the two probes are actually quite different, it does take a while for that reader reading to get up there. Hmm. So I got to go in there and basically say, you know what, I don't really care how much jitter the output has i need a more instantaneous like yeah give it to input. me yeah yeah um so i gotta play with that but um that's really the only issue i had last night uh testing all this was like huh that kind of sucks because you like you'll turn it over like so you're you you're heating up your hot liquor tank right mm -hmm. and then you switch over to your ma the mash ton reader uh thermal uh rtd not thermocouple and then it will like jump up because like you you just disconnected it because it's it's a make it's a break before make connection. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to short out any anything. 
And so it switches over, and it basically gets a widely different temperature. And so it will, like, it will undershoot. And so it will think, the controller thinks, hey, I need to turn this element on. I'm like, no, you're actually, like, over temp right now because you put 170 degree water and it's supposed to be 150. Mm. Um, so I got to play around with that. Um, but, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it so far. Besides the couple of issues I talked about last week I want to do. Version 2. You know, uh, I was reading the manual, which the manual for both of the PIDs that I have, and even the one you have, just sucks. I mean, yeah, they're not very good. It's it's not good, and and if you go on like forums and try to like figure things out, people are just like, well, just set this to this, and they don't say why, and they don't yeah. say what it means. Like the, the 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 I'm using air quotes. The crappy PID I have has a setting that's called DL, and it stands for digital filtering. Don't know why it's yeah. called DL, uh, and it has values from zero to twenty, but it doesn't tell you what any of that means. It doesn't tell you what, uh, like, what the impact of. So, well, digital filtering, like, uh, well, if I want things to be well filtered, shouldn't I put it at twenty, just like max it out? But like, does that mean it goes slow? Does that mean I'm gonna get uh, erroneous readings or something? Or like, what is? I don't know. And so, like, a lot of people manual. online were like, five is good. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just do that. I hate that. Like, you need to be a little bit more clear, but frankly, for the price of these things, like, I don't know, it's excusable that you can get away with uh, really garbage manuals on that. So, I went to find my manual. This is the quote nice one that's forty dollars instead of twenty dollars yep yep hey <laughs> um, 25 get it right yeah 25 <laughs> and uh it's still not very good but at least when you look at like the the menu options it actually kind of tells you what you're setting hmm. like what the oh yeah here it's called p underscore ft on this controller okay digital filter strength zero to 66 i don't know why the top end 66 <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the default's 55, which is in the higher range. Well, but wait, wait, no. Does that mean that 55 is more filtering or 55 is yes. less filtering? Yeah, 55 is more filtering. So 1 through 30, it's funny, is the default's 55, okay? Okay. Which is almost at the strongest the digital filter can be. Okay. 1 through 30 is normal filter strength. If your default is not normal, what, what does that mean? I had no idea. <laughs> Yeah, the, here it is. The greater the value is, the stronger the filter strength will be. Stronger filtering strength increase the stability of the readout, but causes more delay in response to changes in the temperature. So I want, I probably want to turn that to, like, super low for this one. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, give it a shot. Who knows? Because, I mean, yeah. okay, well, the question is, like, does that mean that your sample rate changes? Or does that mean that, like, you get, like, you get bouncing temperatures all over the place? Because you see on the crappy PID I have, the filter is set to off, like, by default. Like, so it just the readout just... Fl- no, but the readout's still, like, one update a second. So uh, the thing is, under the hood, I have no clue what it's doing. Yeah. The readout is correct. I mean, it's showing the right value. And I set the... I tried 0, 5, and 20, which is, like... The know, range. Nothing yeah. 20% and 100%. And I didn't notice any changes in anything. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it doesn't do anything. Yeah, it might not. You're right. <laughs> like, maybe half of the things don't do anything. <laughs> 
don't know. But yeah, um, I think these are these manuals are te- they're technically correct manuals. I, I mean, if, if if that was their goal to be yes. well, that's their goal is minimally they accurate everything. But we, it would be nice to be like if you like having like an application document. Yeah, like you want to do X, so here's how you do it. And standpoint instead of being like, okay, I need to, I want like I, I wouldn't even know if that was a thing unless you had to read every single letter on this paper. Right. That the, that the digital filtering affected the readout speed. Like, you wouldn't know that unless you read this entire thing, which I don't think is very good design. No, it's or terrible. Or very good uh, documentation. <laughs> yeah. I, but, but I think it all comes down to what we said before. Like, these things are really cheap, so. Yeah, yeah. I do like how they have a huge, like, almost have, like, a whole half page to the auto tuning, and basically in the end is you set auto tune and then you you walk away. You walk away. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Once it like gets to the desired temp, you let it run for like five more minutes. And you're like, okay, that's done. That's enough. <laughs> well, it will. It's supposed to end on its own. It's supposed to, you know, stop when it thinks it's done. Yeah. So I don't know. Like basically, it, mine took about five minutes afterwards, and then it finally clicked off. Yeah, right, right, right. But, well, um, yeah, the the one that you have actually has like an auto tune LED, and it tells you when it's doing. Yeah, auto-tune. it says AT. Yeah, it blinks yeah. it when it's auto tuning. But yeah, it's just like, why have, like, there's like charts and stuff like how it works. It's like I don't, why do, why do I care about that? I'd rather have more description about the. Uh, digital filter strength. You know, this is opinion. funny, yeah, because like with the autotune, the one thing that you have zero control over, they have tons of description on. Yes. <laughs> How it works. Yeah, because like honestly, like when, when you hear like digital filtering, you're like, ooh, that sounds like it could be good. It sounds like I could get rid of noise inside of my control box or yeah. like spurious readings or something like that. But uh, who knows? Yep. There's only so much you can do with four or three buttons on the front of a, you know, little box that costs 20 bucks. <laughs> but apparently it's got like 40 menu options. <laughs> Actually, you know, the, uh, to be honest, that's what I really like about the, the cheapo one. It, o- it only has four menu options. And underneath each one of those, like if you enter into that option, then you have to set all the values within that option. Or not have to, but like you can scroll through them. But every time you go into the menu, it's only two layers deep. The top one is, you know, your four major things, input, output, auto-tune, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then like values. And 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 the 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 more expensive one has like secret menus and all these other things you can get into. <laughs> like depending on how like long or how fast you press buttons and things. Yep. If you thought that that setting the time on your VCR was uh, difficult, try changing a PID <laughs> controller. Because <laughs> uh, there's, there's no standard. Yeah. Okay, so, so what do you need to do, Stephen, before the 27th? Well, okay, so last weekend, in fact, last podcast, I said, like, it was my goal for the weekend to get my control box done. And... I CNC'd an entire box and wired a box from scratch 
last weekend, and like I totally knocked it out of the park and got it done. Like everything it looks amazing. Is working. Yeah, it's freaking. It's freaking cool. Uh, and and it was a little bit wobbly yesterday. So um, or at the end of the weekend, I was like, ah, okay. So it, my mounting system, I did like um, uh, black iron pipe to mount it to my uh, my brew cart, and I did very one millennial. Fitting. Of you. So yesterday I went to Home Depot and got a second fitting and welded that on, and it's like skookum now. It's really awesome. So I finished up my box. My box is done. So what I need to do, there's kind of like two major things before the weekend. I need to tear all of my pots apart and clean the living bejesus out of them because they haven't been touched in years. And I looked at my elements, and they they're just they have like a crust of of Ooh. minerals on them. So. I need to do that, and then um, I need to run the uh, auto-tune on my pots also. I've already run it once, but the thing is, like, given that I ran all of my auto-tunes for the pressures and humidities of Texas versus Colorado, means just guaranteed that those values will not work here. I, I think you so. should go into the PID controller and get the values that it set itself to and see if they actually change. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I, I actually haven't done that yet. Um, it, you know, it's super weird on the on the crappy PID controller I have. If you look at the manual, the the one piece of paper that comes with it, it uh, it doesn't talk about auto tune. But if you go like search the internet, there's a lot of people who are like, here's the menu on how to get to auto tune. So it's kind mm. of like, ooh, that's. Because uh, like in if one of the menu options in the crappy PID is just called PID, and you enter into it, uh, and there's yeah. a value for P, a value for I and D, and and there's a handful of people online that are just like, here are just generic values that get you there, and and I was talking about this last uh, podcast. Most of the people say, okay, here's another really confusing thing: the value zero is like a reserved value. It's a special value. So zero doesn't mean nothing in this PID. Zero means something special. It means everything. Yeah, like, so don't do that. <laughs> but, but, um, it starts, I mean, we're talking about like, up in the PID loop. Yeah. Like the matrix is just starts coming out of it. Um, <laughs> we're talking about like pots of like many gallons of water here. In terms of like action, nothing happens fast. So most of the time, the D value in the PID loop is like a value of one or two. Like it, you don't want this PID to do anything rapidly because it's not gonna happen, you know. Because if you, as soon as you start raising that D value, it's gonna oscillate like a freaking madman and go nuts because it's just like I don't know what to do. Let's do something fast. But it's like the thermal mass of ten gallons of water is not doing anything fast. Exactly. <laughs> even with, even with five thousand five hundred watts of power going into it, like it ain't doing nothing fast. Yeah. Actually, that's one of the when I was working on all this uh, last night. That's actually one thing I added to my list of improvements oh. for my system is um, boil kettle needs two elements. Oh, it's not fast enough for you? It's not fast enough for 10 gallons. Really? Yeah. Because you actually have like, you know, about 12 gallons in there and it takes quite a while. I'm used to, also, you got to remember, I'm used to like propane <laughs> propane gets it there pretty quick. Yeah, propane max max burner. It's it's pretty cooking. Like you can get the, what was it seven gallons to boil in like under ten minutes. 
Yeah, um, that sounds about right. And this was definitely, I didn't time it, but I'm like, man, this is taking quite a while. Now it was more volume. I probably should actually sit there with a timer. But um, I'm like, yeah, because I have 50 amp service to this rig. I can run two at once. You can and run 11,000 watts into water. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was thinking is actually I could set up the, the controllers to where if is if the hot looker tank is on, elements on, then make sure the 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 secondary uh, boil one is off. Yeah. And so the basically if the output in the hot liquor tank is turned on, then the one the second one is off. But then when you're just on the boils finally, then you can just have both turned on because the hot liquor tank is turned off. Right. Yeah. Just do some simple logic on the inside. Yeah. 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 But again, goal is. This brewery has to get through season one. You know, okay, so so here is one one thing to consider about that. That is cool, but re- re- recall you were trying to potentially test going from room temperature to boiling. When it comes time to go from from the mash, no, to I boil, was going from one fifty. You were going from one fifty to two twelve, and you were and it was too slow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. You're like usually. What what happens is I, I put my first runnings from my mash into my boil kettle and I get it started. Like Oh yeah, that's what I was doing, yeah. So almost by the time I'm done with my sparge, which is the second step kind of of everything, I'm almost already boiling. Like I've got it down to like I don't want to waste time on this crap. Yeah, no, I actually already do that because I think um letting the uh letting it sit at that temperature um, is a detriment to to your wart basically. Hmm. Let it sit at one seventy or whatever your mash out temperature was. Like you should be heating that up as fast as you can to boil. Yeah. Um, the because you're still fighting, you know, enzymes being converted at that point. Like the whole point of the mash out. So it and when you're mashing, you're converting all these enzymes to to and and sugars into this nice tea called wort and um, and when, when it's called mash out, you put hotter water in and it and, kills the or sparging. It stops it, the it, enzyme. It's process. supposed to stop the enzyming, but then when you put it into your boil kettle, and so Steve and I do what's called batch uh, uh, sparging, which is basically you do one batch of water and then you fill your mash tun, which has all your grains in it, again with water and let that soak for a bit more so you get uh, more sugars out. You rinse well, it, basically. Yeah, you're rinsing it out. Um, and then, so that first runnings goes into the brew kettle, and the that cools down. It can actually start the enzymes start processing again. <laughs> and so you want to, so the, the way to counteract that is like go ahead and just start your 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 kettle to start boiling it. Mm. Um, it could be because I, I it could have been Stephen. I was just not even paying attention to the time, and I was just like the only thing I like I didn't have a beer to keep me occupied. So I was just watching basically a number on a PID controller go up. <laughs> <laughs> you were watching paint dry is what you're telling me. Basically. Yeah. You know, I've seen I've seen larger uh, breweries that do like one, two, three barrel stuff have two or three elements, you know, and and, and frankly, they probably have bigger elements. But um, yeah, but in some cases they don't. Some cases they use the standard 5500 watt. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Oh, so if I ever go to um, bottom drain, what if the elements were pointing straight up? 
like a nuclear reactor. <laughs> the 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 really bad part about that is if they ever um, uh, become exposed to the air, then they just explode. oh, just like a nuclear reactor. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, your Chernobyl pots is what you got. <laughs> Chernobyl pots. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got three pots: Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. Right there, you go. <laughs> That'd be great. Okay, so we're still on what we need to do before brew day. You know, I, I just got a, a a cheapo pump that arrived from Amazon, like a twenty dollar pump, uh, because I, I it's been it's actually been a few years since I've brewed. One of the things I totally forgot my efficiency of my coil for my hot liquor tank. Uh, in terms of like transferring heat into the wart is garbage. It's absolutely horrible because I don't actually move the water around. Uh, and so like it's I don't convection basically. To yeah, right, right. Like I basically what I had to do is defeat the whole purpose of doing everything electrically because I'd have to sit with my hot liquor tank and spin it with a spoon. you're laughing because you're like oh that's garbage so i just bought a little cheapo pump because the water that's in my hot liquor tank i just use it for cleaning i'm not touching it for anything so i don't care what the pump is uh so i'm just gonna use a, a an aquarium pump effectively to recirculate the water and just make sure that it moves and i have new hot or new fresh hot water flowing over my uh, coil, which will make my PID so much happier than yeah. having to like fight. Like it's like, I'm just raising the temperature and nothing's happening. You know, that's what yeah. my PID was doing before. So how about you? What do you got left to do? Uh, I've got to clean it. So I'm probably going to like, this is like getting rid of all manufacturing fluids off of it. Right. So yeah. like scour the pots and pans. Um, and then, uh, run a lie cleaner through it to make sure there's no organics, and then I need to run. I need to get a, I need to get that acid. So I need to go to one of my brewery friends and be like, "Can I have some acid in this growler?" <laughs> <laughs> Just bring one of those uh, orange Homer buckets from Home Depot. <laughs> They're like I think I'm gonna bring a growler. There you go. Uh, mainly because it has to be. I have to know it's really clean. The vessel. And that's the thing about people using those buckets. So this is like those Home Depot buckets. Like some people actually like brew or, or um, ferment their beer. Or no. Which, yeah. No, don't do that. <laughs> but some people do because technically they are food safe. Actually, okay, so there's there's two different buckets that Home Depot sells. One is food safe and one is not. Like the orange one that they have like stacked 500,000 tall by the door, those are not food safe. Do not use those for this. But the thing is, at Home Depot, the food safe ones, you don't know what someone put in that bucket before you bought it. What, do you think people are just walking around the store like putting random crap in it? I've, I've used buckets at Home Depot to... And so they don't have like carts or not carts, um, baskets. You use the bucket as a basket. You know, uh, funny enough, I was at Home Depot just the other day and I always run into the issue where like I go to Home Depot and I'm like, I'm going to buy two things. And then I have like 18 things in my hands. And I was like, this still isn't big enough to justify a cart. But like, I feel like an idiot walking around with 40 things in my hands. You know? But then you walk down every aisle and everyone's doing the same thing. Yeah, they, exactly. <laughs> We're all idiots together on this planet. You know, cheers. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> uh, 
So yeah, I gotta clean it. And then I want to do a mock brew day with all the white water. Basically, yeah. like, do it without the grain. Be like, okay, I got to set up my hot liquor tank, get it up to temp, transfer the first, you know, the first runnings worth in the mash ton. And, like, just do it all time, too. Like, set it all up. And, and then that way I can kind of figure out where my inefficiencies are in the, um, in the transfers. Yeah. Um, I don't is uh because going through it all, I only really had like like two gallons total of waste in the mash tun and brew pot. Even though I'm not, um, I don't have uh, I'm side draining out of the pots, and I don't have a a kick down inside or a siphon inside of them. It's mm-hmm. basically a hole in the side of the pot. It's like, you know, an inch and a half off the bottom. So it's actually not that bad of a loss in the end because you don't want all the stuff out of your kettle anyways because there's a lot of, you know, stuff that falls out. And then at the end of your mash, you just can't get everything because it's, you know, in your in your grains. Um, by the way, the, the shop vac worked amazing at getting all the rest of that stuff out. It's so, like just rah, rah. shiny metal after you're done with the shop vac. Yeah, Roz gave gave me that idea. I think I mentioned this last week on the podcast, but if I didn't, yeah, Roz gave me that idea because I'm like, I don't know how to get all this liquid out. I might have to get some big sponges. And Roz is like, shop vac. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's awesome. By the way, though, make sure the water's cool beforehand. I think I might have ruined the hose on my shop vac. (laughs) (laughs) I suck it it. boiling water. Oh, that's great. Because it, like, collapsed on itself because it heated up and it's, like, not supposed to do that. So, um, I have to go check the hose probably after this podcast and make sure it's still structurally sound or I have to buy another hose for it. <sighs> it's always something. Always. Always something. But, yeah, once I do that, then go get ingredients and get some. Oh, I want to test the cool down, too. That's something I did the calculations on and it should work. According to my calculations. Um, well, it's a, just a thermal difference because, like, how? Because how? Because you have a plate chiller, and I have a plate chiller. Mm-hmm. But what I'm doing is, I basically my idea is in my hot liquor tank. I'm using as my vessel for my cold, my water, my ice. And so basically, the idea is you fill the hot liquor tank up full of ice, and then that pumps to the cold side of the uh, plate chiller, and then the hot side, of course, is the is what's in your boil kettle. And I calculated it out, and I'm like, okay, that's enough cold to get the boil down to, like, you know, room temp. Yeah. I I have a vessel full of cold. Yes. Um, and just how much cold do you need, right? You know, I, I have to admit, I, I, I cheat on this side because I live in Colorado. Even in the summer, my groundwater is cold. Yeah, so, I like, I'm just you're going to pump my hose through it, and it's, like, 60 degrees, and that's plenty. Yeah, here, though, it's, like, 78. <laughs> no, it's more than that. Turn out of the ground. <laughs> Your groundwater is, <laughs> like, 90. <laughs> and it doesn't cool with crap. No, it doesn't do anything. Yeah. So I'm going to try the ice. I, I want to try that, too. So I got to get a um, – I'll probably try it on Wednesday night. Wednesday, I'll probably do my mock brew. 
And so I have to go to the, you know, the gas station and get like a ice chest full of ice. Yeah. I need to get 15 gallons with ice, I think. 15 gallons of ice, I think, when I did the calculation, will, will cool like 10 gallons of, of wort. Okay, I'm, I, I, I got a challenge for us. I think what we need to do is, so my brew day is typically like all day. Like it takes yeah. it takes all day. I, I usually get up in the morning and start at like seven or eight, and I'm done by like seven or eight. Uh, so I'm gonna be posting pictures in the Slack channel all day. I want to see oh. you post pictures in the Slack channel. Okay, I gotta see who gets done first. Well, I'm I'm brewing two batches, so. Uh, well, I'm doing I'm brewing two batches up at the same time. <laughs> You'll be done before me, I think. <laughs> Actually, you know what? We'll probably be done at the same time. Probably because I have never brewed with this rig at all so it's gonna be a big learning experience yeah for sure okay all right yep. so check it out on saturday in the slack channel we'll have some competing pictures of hot liquid yeah hot li <laughs> so so I, I i got a i got a somewhat of a, a separate topic like a completely way like 180 degrees topic here uh but wait we've talked about brewing enough here um i got i, I actually wanted to talk to you about some eda workflow uh stuff so so um like your workflow for for eda tools and what the, what kind of spawned this is i was talking to a buddy of mine the other day who had actually emailed me and was like hey i've got a i've got a pcb would you mind taking a look at it uh, just before I ordered, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" So I look at this board, and it's a it's a beautiful board. It looks great, and it's got all this through hole over it because this person wanted to do, um, uh, hand solder it, which is totally cool. But there was like three or four surface mount parts on it, and I was like, "You know, there's no need for these to be surface mount, especially if you're already doing everything through hole. Like for consistency's sake, you could go through hole." And I was like, "Why did you?" Why did you make these? And they were just diodes. They were like one and four, one, four, eights. They were just like okay, yeah, yeah. really generic diodes. Like, what's the purpose? And the person was like, oh, because I, I had the footprint for it. That was their entire reason for it. And, and I kind of was like, ah, like, that's not, that's not necessarily, in my opinion, the best reason to do that. But, like, I, I get it. I get it. And, and so I was like, okay, cool, fine. They ordered the boards. They had a lot of trouble soldering those surface mount parts. In fact, some of the parts fell off because they didn't do a great job. And then they went and changed them to uh, surface mount, I mean, to through hole, and reordered the boards and had to rebuild them. And, and I don't want it to be like a I told you so thing because it's certainly not that. That's, that's not what I'm going at here. But I, I do wanted to talk real quick about EDA workflow and like when do you choose to use someone else's footprints versus never. your own never 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 really you I, make 100% of your parts i make 100% of all my footprints i whenever eagle cuz eagle has a whole bunch of built in ones yeah the first thing i do on every single update is i go into that directory and i delete all that stuff <laughs> i want my 10 megabits back of of hard drive space yeah and so I delete all that, and no, I make all my footprints, every single one. You see, okay, we, we've we've talked about this before. Um, I'm a, I'm almost a hundred percent in your camp. 
I make probably 99% of my footprints. Uh, I, there's, there's a few footprints that I don't make or I'm willing to use default footprints. Uh, and that's only because like I've tested them and I was like, this works. I'm okay with this. And that's a TSOP <laughs> package. Like I've used Diptrace's default TSOP and it works. And uh, the SOT23 three package i've used that and it works and then um they have some through hole caps that i trust although in their most recent update they deleted all of those so like whatever okay fine i'll yeah, make my own i have no problem making my own but but um you know I, another thing is like i've been kind of like trolling the um uh, not trolling's not the right word. Lurking on the uh, drip trace forums, and there's a lot of people who are like, when drip trace reaches out and says like, "Hey, what can we update or what can we, you know, in, improve about this software?" A lot of people are like, "Please add footprints for these parts," and they just give like four random parts, you know. Oh, yeah. And it's like, wait, shouldn't that be what you are supposed to do? Like, why is that dip trace's responsibility to make footprints for you? And at the same time, like, what if that person makes a mistake? Trace. You know? Yeah, it puts the liability on dip trace. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I I fit firmly into the camp of like, if you are going to use someone else's footprint, the very first thing you do is you import it and you check it. Like, yeah, top exactly. to bottom. Like. <laughs> Yeah. And 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 even even then like if you asked Parker and I to make a diode footprint they would look different because we have yes. different ways of doing it. Like pick any part we wouldn't do it differently. And so like I don't I don't like the idea of basing your design off of the ease of using someone else's um stuff that they made. It's not as simple as that, you know? Now, I have chosen parts based on the fact that I already had them designed myself. Sure. I can see and that. I could have done like, I could have been like, oh, I can save a buck here if I just redesign this part, but I'm only building one of them. So yeah, I'm just going to use the more expensive part. Well, but, but okay. So what's okay. The question is, what's the difference though? Like how long would it take you to design a footprint and how much is your time worth versus, you know, just, I'm making one of these, and so yeah, it's a yeah. buck more. Who cares, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, the the way it boils down to me, and and frankly, this is informed by diff trace, but I think that this is basically true of every EDA tool. Every EDA tool has four different aspects to it. There's schematic, which is like obvious, and then there's layout, which is obvious, but then there's two sub, I guess you could call them modules that go in there. There's a thing that makes what the schematic looks like, and then there's a thing that makes what the layout looks like. And in Diptrace... Are you talking about like a fo footprint editor and then a symbol editor? Exactly. And in, in Diptrace, they call them component editor and pattern editor, which, same thing for symbol and, and footprint. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. like, you have those four, and every EDA tool has those four, even if they don't break them up into those four. Uh, you know, they're, they're, always, they're always there. And and I think one misstep that a lot of people make is they look at EDA tools and they're just like, oh, it's a schematic and it's a layout. And I just, you know, they've already given me all the parts and I just select them and I go. And like, no, like you don't start in schematic half the time. You start in the components or you start yep. in the footprints and you, you Nine, go from 90 there. 90% of my layout is, if it's 
if it's a brand new thing and I'm using all new parts, 90% of it is done in the editors, the layout and schematic editor. Right. I mean, uh, symbol, symbol and, and component editor. Is, it, is that what uh, Eagle calls them? Um, it calls them... Oh, man. What the... Um, the symbol is for the schematic. Symbol is like the the is is for the schematic side, and then layout side is called. I think it's actually called package. Yeah, package. yeah, that makes sense. Package and symbol, and then those go together into your library to make a device. I think it's called device. You know, okay, so that's one thing that I'm super jealous about Eagle that I think Eagle just knocks out of the park, and and frankly, I I don't. I haven't seen as many EDA tools do it as well as Eagle, in my opinion. A lot of people don't like how Eagle handles libraries, and I'm like, this is perfect. Eagle's Eagle's <laughs> ability to have like variants is so awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, like that is so killer. Like with Dip Trace, one part is one part. Like they make it super pure. Like if if you want like the 32 pin version of something, and then you want to change to the 48 pin version. Good luck. You're gonna have to create both of those from scratch. But with with mm -hmm. Eagle, you can kind of flip flop in between, and I kind of like that. It's super nice. It is nice. If you want to make like a family of parts, dip tri I mean, uh, Eagle is so nice about that. Yeah. So I, I think I think what it kind of what a lot of this boils down to in my mind is, um, if you're getting an EDA tool, if you're starting to learn an EDA tool, or even if you're starting to learn like just electronics in in general, like. Keep in mind that all of this is is bigger than just schematic and layout, and and I think it's really important to know that like you're going to spend a lot of time making footprints and schematic symbols, and that's a good thing. And don't just go asking for other people to make those for you. It's mm -hmm. really important to know how to read a data sheet, and and just as much knowing how to like read a dimensional drawing in order to create a footprint. It's also nice to be able to adjust your schematic symbol such that it's readable for someone else. Like, does it make sense to put your power and ground where you put them? Well, maybe not. Maybe it makes sense to put them on a different axis on your schematic symbol. Who knows, you know? So, like, I don't know. I, it always kind of irks me when someone's like, well, I already had this thing because I downloaded it from this random weird website. Uh, are you sure that's going to work, dude? Like, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> You know, and and so on. A, as a side note, there are footprint standards for components. Um, JDEC is is one of the big ones that has like, this is an 0603. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 in the most recent DipTrace release, they have this big like auto footprint generator thing that they've released that like tries to interpret data and create JDEC standards from it. I, I got to admit, I don't care because I'm going to make it myself anyway. Like, I don't want I, I don't want an AI <laughs> trying to think of what I'm going to do. I want to do it myself and then know it's right, because even yeah. if a computer does it, that's not good enough. Yeah, I, I think a lot of those like auto generation footprint stuff is people are making it a bigger problem than it actually is in the end. Yeah. It doesn't take that long to design these things. No by hand um yeah because there's um i think keycad's got like a wizard and it still gets stuff wrong right 
Because you still have to interpret what you put into the wizard. You still have to go look at a data sheet and then infer the the measurements of of, of all the uh, pins and uh, pitch, pad size, all that good stuff. Which is like, if right. you can do it that, you already did it. You can just manually put it down. Well, and and, and at the same time, like, great example. Like it's saving time if you're doing, like, BGAs. But I think uh, most but, but, EDA but, but tools maybe I you know lo- like big asterisks maybe on there, uh, you know one of the things that work we know our manufacturing line because we've been working with this line for years and years and we know that if we do particular things we'll have parts tombstone so we don't do that. And our footprints are tailored for our manufacturing line. They're not tailored for whatever random thing we downloaded. We found, you know, from some trial and error that, like, if we do X, Y, Z, it's going to be good or it's going to be bad. And uh, and I think that's something really important. Like, if you're designing a product and your manufacturer comes back and it's like, hey, we ran your boards and these footprints are causing all kinds of errors. You need to go and fix them. Well, like, what happens if you went and downloaded someone else's footprints? You, you don't even know how to fix them now. You go and tweet that guy and call him out and say, hey, you need to fix your footprint. Well, but but the problem is maybe maybe that guy's footprint isn't even bad, you know? Uh, yeah, it could have been designed for hand soldering. Like, let's say a hand solder 0805, which would have a lot more pad area. But during reflow, hey, that's going to make it pull off the pad in Tombstone. Actually, you know, it's funny. I had a customer um, hit me up last week, and they, they sent me Gerbers for uh, some stuff that they wanted us to work on. And they had a QFN package that had one of those thermal pads underneath the, you know, the, the part. And it was a big, like a giant rectangle. And their paste aperture was the full size of the thing. So it would have been like a peanut butter jelly sandwich worth of... It would floating there. Yeah, like it would have been like a full gram of solder underneath Maybe this one part. The IC would be on a big, big inner tube just floating around on that <laughs> exactly. solder paste. And, and I wrote the guy an email, a nice email saying like, hey, you know, we should probably adjust these apertures. And he was like, oh, I had originally downloaded this you know this this part and i was intending for this to be hand soldered so i didn't even adjust that but like you didn't tell me that i just looked at your stuff i was like good lord like this is gonna be like five dollars worth of paste on just this part (laughs) (laughs) so you know not this is not to like dig on anyone but but all i'm really getting at is like if you if you're gonna get deep into eda stuff like just like Learn how to do the the parts. Learn how to do the footprints because you're gonna need to anyway. One, one. Yeah, it's one, a good skill. It's yeah, it's a good skill. And I, you know, the the biggest thing I remember we were talking with Alicia White with uh, the uh, embedded FM embedded podcast. FM podcast, and yeah. and she was just like it blew her mind that we were like, yeah, we make every part or nearly every part. Well, I think that's the, was the big difference we found between hardware engineers and software engineers is a lot of. Uh, and I, this is when I do code as well. It's like, I don't write everything. No. Like, you leverage modules and libraries a lot. Whereas in hardware, man, it is hard to trust something <laughs> you find online. Yeah, if someone screws up, I want it to be me. Yeah, I mean, it's just the it's just having control. Whereas, this, and I think we talked about this on that podcast, is in software, if the module doesn't work, let's say it's Python, so you have modules instead of libraries, and the module doesn't work, you found out in five seconds. Yeah. That it didn't work. And it didn't Whereas, cost you much. 
it didn't cost you that much besides your time and you have to go for more research and blah 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 whereas if that footprint is incorrect oh man that can that will ruin your month like, right it ruins a month yeah yeah <laughs> and for for as simple as a part like a 1n4148 which costs a tenth of a cent in quantity like that could ruin your board you know if for the difference of going from uh, you know an, a sod one two three surface mount package to making your own custom do you know 35 package that you could do in two minutes just do it you know yep just do it okay so i have one more thing before we sign off Ooh. so the brewery besides us brewing on on saturday i mean season one of the brewery is done i'm calling them seasons cool okay so basically next season is start of is like may next year right okay and that's where i'm going to work on all the improvements we talked about last last week but now I need another have another project for the podcast because that was my podcast project, and I'm putting a stamp that it is done. It hasn't made beer yet, but it will. I boiled water. Do, do, do you want me to go through the list of unfinished projects no. and picky one? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I am. I'm going to do. I might pick some stuff from that list eventually, but I'm going to start doing some projects that I know I can get knocked out within like three weeks okay and so the first project i'm going to work on is a device that makes sure my cat does not get fed more than once a day hmm and it's gonna be all this stuff's gonna be simple um basically what happens is like i'll feed my cat and then my cat will eat all the food and then go bug my mom or my dad if my dad's home and meow 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 gets fed again so I, I want to have like, like a lockout box function that goes on like the food bin that has a red or green light on it. Green light is you can feed the cat. Red light is don't feed the cat. And I want it to run off just like a battery so you don't have to worry about, um, you know, plugging it in or anything like that. It doesn't need IOT connectivity to let Twitter know the cat's been fed. That doesn't have doesn't matter. Um, Wait, you, you're you're scope controlling this already oh, scope control all these projects are gonna be scope controlled Ooh. but they're all going to have something interesting that i haven't done before in circuit layout and or design so this one is going to be like power efficiency mm. so it needs to be able to like i pop a battery in and i don't have to worry about this thing for you know a year or two longer longer is better AAA battery probably run it off of don't know yet so we we do have a guest next week but yes. but after that i guess we can get an update on this yeah i'll probably have a board layout by then at least i hope fingers crossed Maybe code if i have a dev board that will work because i am going to run a microcontroller because i do want to have like some accuracy in time yeah um and just power efficiency it's like hard to do a lot of counting for time wise with an analog circuit power efficiently Ooh, you should challenge yourself to do it because you would have to use like a decade counter and last i looked those were cmos device eh, maybe they're power efficient i have to go look that would be nice if you just had a, a counter that you would just a big big counter and then a really slow clock I, that might be power efficient i, I think you could check. do it yeah with just a flip-flop state for the leds that'd be cool and then, then the only thing is it has no 
if you fed the cat or not. And I thinking like, like you just press a button on it. Yeah, press a press a button on it, and it goes green to red, as in don't feed, and then yeah. it resets every twenty four hours. Right? Yeah, I was thinking about reset like every eighteen. Okay. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, you don't. It gives a little window. So, so just pick whatever bit that that happens on in the decade counter. You could do it analog. Yeah. When we say analog, it's a decade counter, which is a digital device. Uh, y- yeah, it's it's the analog side of things, you know. <laughs> it's that like where a computer doesn't get <laughs> involved, you know. Yeah, I guess the decade counter is a computer as well. Oh, now you're getting right on the verge of things. Yeah. All we right. Wrap this thing up. Yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Later, everyone. Take it easy.